While we were marching through Georgia, everybody swing your honey, swing your high and low. The Alaman left for the old left hand, around the ring you go. A grand old right to left walk on your heel and toe. Promenade that pretty gal to Georgia. This is Moving Through Georgia, and today we're going to talk about something that would probably seem pretty boring at first. We're going to talk about compulsory education in Georgia. That's right, we're going to talk about why you had to, or maybe still have to, go to school. As a British colony between Oglethorpe's tenure and the American Revolution, two Georgia schoolmasters were employed at the expense of the House of Commons. One was in Savannah and the other was in Augusta. Then, as you know, Georgia stopped being a British colony and adopted its own state constitution. The state constitution of Georgia from 1777 states in Article 54, Not a lot of schools were open to public expense right away. There was a publicly funded high school that opened in Augusta in 1783, and some academies were established, but generally what we would consider public schools were few and far between. Education was available if you could afford tuition, or if your children weren't needed to work on the farm. The more common idea of the tax-supported public school comes from the Poor School Fund of 1817, when a quarter million dollars was allocated to build free schools throughout the state. In 1822, it was determined that one or more fit persons would be appointed from each county as superintendents for the education of poor children. Kids from 8 to 18 whose families qualified could have their tuition paid for three years. Now, this is the state buying education from the established private schools rather than building their own. However, that started the ball rolling, and by 1858, the word poor had been removed from the discussion and counties were encouraged to build a public school system. The Constitution of 1868 called for Funding would be provided by poll and liquor taxes. The schools, of course, were segregated, and some were only funded for three or four months a year. So, this sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? The state provides an education to its children. They learn and grow up to be productive members of society. Their children climb higher than they did, and everyone prospers. Or, at least that's the way it's supposed to be, isn't it? An article in an Atlanta newspaper called The Jeffersonian from 1910 includes a letter to the editor in which the writer explains that white people are far more intelligent than African Americans and that allowing blacks to attend school would lead them into revolt against the establishment. Basically, schools would corrupt black children while white children would acquire knowledge, and become prosperous and virtuous members of society just basically through their very nature. It's surprising to read that today, but at the time it was a very common and publicly voiced sentiment. Another paper from 1916 published a theory that we still hear today. 
we hear that argument a lot. The problem, of course, is that if you have a class of 16 kids, you have parents with 16 different opinions on just about any subject. And on a private note, if I had the ability to force instruction on children and control the way they think, I would start with walking in line and table manners at lunch. I think a lot of teachers would deal with that before they started dealing with the political stuff. But this 1916 article does expose one danger within the establishment of compulsory education. Some states included dancing in their curriculum. The writer worries that a state requiring elementary education may someday require high school education and may eventually provide textbooks or even school lunches for free. He closes by stating that everyone knows that literate people are known to commit more crimes than illiterates and blames education in general for the downfall of society. And can I just point out that that was all in a letter that he wrote for people to read. While we're on that subject, a 1909 report stated that Georgia was second in the nation for illiteracy. One out of five children between 8 and 14 could not read or write. 12% of white voting age men were illiterate, and this report says that illiterates convicted of crimes outnumbered those who could read and write by two and a half to one. Another point of contention is one that we also still hear today, and that is requiring vaccinations for children to enter school. This goes back to 1911. I'm looking at a letter to the editor that says that compulsory education equals compulsory vaccinations, and he would rather see his kids, quote, rattlesnake bit rather than vaccinated. And before I get accused of taking a side, I want to remind you that one of the goals of this podcast is to prove that there's very few new things under the sun. Arguments and opinions that you read or hear in 2023 don't just come out of the blue. They've been around for a very long time. By the way, there is a vaccine for rattlesnake venom. Now, all jokes aside, there is one crucial distinction that needs to be pointed out. These opinions that I am reading you from the turn-of-the-century newspapers are not criticizing the way public schools are run or how they're administered, or how they're operated. The question they are arguing is whether kids should have to go to school or not. It wasn't until the mid-19th century that things shifted to the idea of compulsory school attendance. Massachusetts was the first. They started requiring kids to attend school at least part of the year in 1852, even though schools had been available for quite a while. Mississippi was the last in 1918. Georgia does stand out in this. A paper written in 1955 notes that 47 states make a specific exemption for those with physical or mental disabilities, while Georgia alone did not. Of course, there is another angle to consider. When the state says that children have to go to school, that means that they can't go to work. 
1904, the National Child Labor Committee was established with the goals to end child employment under 14, end night work for those under 16, and establish an 8-hour maximum day for children. They are obviously not even considering that these children would go to school. Attempts to regulate child labor were generally resisted in the legislature. One bill was rejected with a note that said it would leave our children prey to the temptations of idleness. Two years later, in 1906, the first child labor bill in Georgia would be signed. At first, it prohibited employing any child under 10. A year later, it was 12 and then 14 if the child could read or write and had attended school for 12 weeks in the previous year. Orphans, or those who supported their widowed mothers, were exempted. This put Georgia ahead of 23 states that did not have an educational requirement at all. But things started to change fast, and in five years, in 1911, Georgia would be the only southern state to still have a 60-hour work week for children, and that still permitted children under 12 to work in factories. The best argument I have heard for compulsory education and child labor laws was given by a woman named Helen Pendleton. She was secretary for Associated Charities of Savannah. She, cl she claimed that 44% of Georgia's children between 10 and 14 were illiterate. They were not being educated, so as they grew into adulthood, they would have to compete with children for the only jobs they were qualified to do. They were being drawn into a system in which they would have to do menial work for a child's wage the rest of their lives. And in 1916, a bill was passed in Georgia requiring all children between 8 and 14 to attend school for at least four months of the year. Very different than what we have today. And, of course, there's more to the story than that, but we're going to call it here and say that Moving Through Georgia is a Georgia history podcast that mostly focuses on Northeast Georgia, but wanders around a little bit. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you at movingthroughgeorgia at gmail.com, and that's all one word. Now, one of the funny things you see in the newspaper when you look up articles about schools in Georgia is how many articles mention the fact that the state should pay the teachers' salaries. And I don't mean that they were arguing whether or not the state should take the responsibility of paying teacher salaries. They were actually saying, hey, legislature, you need to pay the teachers. For example, one article from 1934 complains that the Georgia legislature was considering diverting some gasoline tax money to pay the state's teachers. They did not feel that that was a good use of taxpayer funds. Apparently, the governor allocated money to pay the teachers in early spring, and some squeaky wheels were demanding that they get paid more regularly. The irregular pay was causing teachers to borrow each year to cover their expenses, and the interest they paid on those loans was basically a deduction in their pay. Papers throughout the 1800s tell about politicians basically just throwing up their hands and declaring there isn't enough money to pay the teachers, so they won't. 
Funny how there wasn't enough for the teachers, but there was enough money for them to get paid.